Without going into detail about a very nasty letter that was sent to Chris Cumming and that he forwarded on to me, and I sent him an answer that it wasn't even worth answering, but bless Chris's heart, he is a very good-hearted man, and he took the trouble to wade through a lot of scriptures to try to help this gentleman who was very irritated and very angry about the World Watch publication and about the work in general, saying that we are using scare tactics and accused us of sending out dunning letters. Well, of course, that's a total prevarication. Uh, I've never done that. We, knew, we don't do it at all. But oftentimes people do not understand the motives of the work. If you'll turn to the book of Jeremiah right quickly, I want to show you something in both Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos about the motives of a prophet. Jeremiah was told of God that God had called him even before his birth. Now, you know, you really have nothing much to do with that. What could Saul have done when Saul was on the road to Damascus with documents in his hand and lists of people that he was going to hail into jail, prison, and have them beaten or stretched on a rack until they gave up the truth of God and recanted to Judaism. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, he was struck blind, heard a very big, roaring, booming voice, and was frightened out of his wits. And then a voice said to him, obviously an angelic messenger, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, who is going to examine, we'll come to that in a little while, blame, point the finger of accusation at a man who has had an experience like that? Why, you so-and-so, you're doing this for the money. And do you know that the people in Corinth actually accused the Apostle Paul of exactly that? Jeremiah, the first chap uh, chapter, verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Eternal came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. In verse 5, Before I formed you in the belly, God's word came and said to him, I knew you, and before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. What did Jeremiah have to do with it? He didn't choose that as a profession. When you are called of God from the womb, you don't really have much of a choice. Now, did it matter to Jeremiah what the people thought about his ministry, if you want to call it that, or his work? What did he get out of it? Well, read about his entire life. Read the entire book of Jeremiah, which in fact is second Jeremiah, isn't it? Because remember that back in about the 36th chapter or so, the king is sitting by the fireplace in the winter and making sport of the book of Jeremiah that was telling him that he and his family are going to go into captivity and the land of Israel is going into captivity because of monstrous sins such as idolatry, Sabbath-breaking, causing her children to be sacrificed to Chemosh and Baal, and so on. So Jeremiah was put into a slime pit, remember? Lowered into a dungeon in the refuse and offal, probably like an outhouse, right up to his armpits, and finally had to be rescued later on and given diplomatic immunity by the invading armies that came in and carried out exactly what Jeremiah's prophecies had said would occur to that land. And Jeremiah had warned the king, warned the leaders of the nation what was going to happen. They turned a deaf ear. 
What was Jeremiah's lot? Well, he and Gedaliah and a group of people fled to Egypt, and he took the daughter of Zedekiah, two daughters actually, one of them named Teatephi. Later on went in a ship of Dan, probably a very tempestuous crossing, who knows, all the way through the Mediterranean, past the gates of Hercules or the rock of Gibraltar, up to the shores of Ireland, as we call it today, where Haramon mar married Teatephi and a man who was a scribe named Brack who was the assistant and the scribe of an old elderly gray-haired prophet. And that is in the Irish annals about where Jeremiah spent the last few years of his life. Jeremiah didn't live in any mansions. And Jeremiah never had a following. And Jeremiah never had a church. And Jeremiah never met a converted man. Before I knew you and before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord Eternal, behold, I cannot speak. I'm just a boy. I'm just a child. But the Eternal said unto me, Don't say, I'm a child, for you shall go to all that I shall send you, and whatsoever I command you, you shall speak. Be not afraid of their faces. In other words, their looks. You ever run across someone that you've known who gives you a look of utter contempt does it hurt? You bet it does, especially if they were friends before. And people can communicate by, you know, body language, as we call it, and by their facial expression. Someone look at you with a sneer on his face, looking like they're saying in their mind, I wish you would drop dead. It has a way of getting to you if you let it. So God said, don't be afraid of the expressions on their rebellious faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Eternal. He put forth his hand in vision and touched my mouth. And the Eternal said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms, and you can read this in my book called Europe and America in Prophecy, to root out, to pull down, and to destroy. And that was the nation of Israel to which he was to prophesy, and Judah. And to throw down, to build, and to plant. And to build and to plant was, of course, to plant that royal seed in a far-off land where the promise of God of the perennial or perpetual possession of the land after 2,520 years would come to pass. So he said, Jeremiah, verse 11, what do you see? And he said, I see a little shoot of an almond tree. And he said, you've well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it, just like an olive tree and an almond tree grows very, very rapidly. So he said, the second time, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling, bubbling, seething pot, and the face of it is toward the north. The Eternal said unto me, out of the north, and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land, for lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, that was Assyria and Babylon, saith the Eternal, and they shall come, and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem against all the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Jerusalem. In other words, advancing armies are going to place this country under siege. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and burned incense unto other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Where do you read here where Jeremiah said, Oh, won't you give your heart to the Lord? Oh, let us praise the Lord today, brethren and sisters. How good it is to bask in the sunshine of the Lord. The Lord is doing mighty things among us just now. Why, the other day, Sister Barnes and her little boy were healed of a goiter. Sister Barnes has been known to produce and have a dis... Well, never mind, but anyway, 
Uh, did, did Jeremiah ever preach that way? There are people who get on my case because they don't like the tone of World Watch. And there are people who are trying to convince other people that what you really ought to do is watch yourself, look inside. And what you really ought to do is maybe just be a little independent church and sink down in the wonderful splendor of fellowship and of loving brethren and of church events and to have things for... And it's not wrong to have a Bible uh, school for the children. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about an attitude of making the church an end in itself instead of the vehicle in God's hands for accomplishing His work. Such a thing as churchianity, of sinking down into localitis and playing church. I've talked about it for decades. Jeremiah didn't do that. Jeremiah was Mr. Bad News to the leaders of the government. And look what it cost him. God spared his life, but he had to put up with an awful lot of misery. God told him, verse 17, Gird up your loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command you, and be not dismayed at their faces, lest if you cater to, if you pander to what they want you to say, if you preach deceits, preach smooth things, if you give the public what they want to hear, I won't be with you. He said, lest I confound you before them. If you want to be a fake, if you want to be a charlatan, but God gave you his gift first of preaching, of evangelism, of the word and the truth of God, of an understanding of prophecy, but you decide to do it for money. You decide to do it to please the audiences and please the general public. God will take away his gift and you'll stand up there and stutter and stammer, and you won't have a word to say. That's what God told Jeremiah. For behold, I have this day made you a defensed city, and an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. So it came from the king to the princes, the royal princes who were in line for the throne, the priests, of course, it was like a combination theocracy, or it certainly was not a democracy, but it was an absolute autocracy or a powerful monarchy, and of course the priesthood had power of life and death over the people as well, because they could cause people to be stoned to death who broke the law, and ultimately the people of the land, and they shall fight against you, but shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the eternal to deliver you. Another example, turn to the book of Ezekiel in the second chapter. Remember the big glorious vision of the cherubim that Ezekiel saw in the first chapter? He then said, Son of man, after he sees the likeness of the glory of the eternal above this translucent sea of glass that is conveyed about by four cherubim, it's all described in the first chapter, he says, Stand upon your feet, because Ezekiel was absolutely face down on the dirt because of the shock he'd experienced. And I will speak unto you. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and he set me upon my feet. And I heard him that spake unto me, and he said, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent and stiff-hearted. I do send you unto them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord Eternal. This is a message from God, God's Word. And whether they hear or whether they will forbear, because they are a rebellious house, yet 
shall they know that there has been a prophet among them. So Ezekiel was not to gauge success by the number of people who said, Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're trying to tell me. Then I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my way of life. And I'm going to ask, What can I do to help you, Ezekiel? No, he said, Son of man, be not afraid of them. Sounds familiar by this time, doesn't it? He said it to Jeremiah. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Lots of pain, lots of suffering, privation and hardship was in store for Ezekiel. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. Words and looks. Remember the little statement we used to say in the playground, sticks and stones, you know, may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, in a way, that's not true. It, it is kind of whistling in the dark. A little kid, you know, approaching the Fifth Street Bridge, as Cosby used to say, Hello, monster, it's just me, just a little kid, you know, and uh, didn't want the monster to leap out from behind the bridge. That's kind of whistling in the dark when a little kid says, Words don't really harm me, because they do too. When children, like little sharks, persecute other little children and go, Nya, 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 Danny's got a girlfriend, etc., it does hurt. And they do attack little children who maybe have weaknesses or deformities or debilities or who aren't quite as gifted athletically or intellectually, and they will jump on them and pick at them like so many chickens in a barnyard. If one chicken has a wound, the other chickens will peck it to death and literally cannibalize it, which makes some people not want to eat chickens. Thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. Same thing that God told Jeremiah to, in a sense, stiffen his spine and give him the courage to continue on with the work that God had given him to do, so that he would not gauge the success of his mission by the number of converts or the number of people who listened and agreed but he would gauge the success of his mission by one criterion only, that being, was he faithful to the Word, and did he keep at it, and did he proclaim it faithfully to the leaders of the country, and did he never change his message? Did he get that message out? But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto you, being you not rebellious like that rebellious house, open your mouth and eat what I will give you. And here's the symbolism as in the book of Revelation, of the little book that he ate that he said, caused his uh, mouth as sweet as honey, but his belly to be very bitter. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 3. Verse 4, Son of man, go get you to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. You're not sent to a people of strange speech and of a hard language. And I haven't been sent to Germany. I haven't been sent to Japan. I don't have to go over there and talk about the kind of right, you know, the plain truth. But I can talk to English people, English-speaking people in the United States, Canada, Australia, the English-speaking world. You're not sent to a foreign country, to people of a strange speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have hearkened unto you. That harks back to the prophecy of Jonah, doesn't it? Because Jonah went to Nineveh. The only successful prophet in the entirety of the Bible went to a group of Gentiles, Assyrians, and they listened, the king listened, and got afraid, and repented, proclaimed a fast, and said, even the animals aren't going to eat and drink water. 
And the great city of Nineveh was spared because the king listened to the proclamation, the prophecy, the warning of Jonah, and God spared them. The only case in all of history where any nation, any citizen, any king, any city, city-state, listened to a warning from God, and the impending punishment from God was averted, is in the case of the book of Jonah when Nineveh was spared. Never did Israel listen. But you know, one thing is interesting. Following the 70 years captivity, after all of these many, many wars, after all of the many, many sieges and attacks and carrying away captive tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, 200 and some thousand carried away from Judah by Sennacherib even before Israel fell. Finally, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, do you realize there's one important thing about the Jewish race? From that time to this, Though they do not truly worship the God of the Bible as we understand Him and as we know Him, and they did not accept Jesus Christ as the Savior, they still think they're looking for Messiah, and they believe in the Old Testament. I'm talking now about religious Jews, Orthodox Jews, and there are many different sects of them. But one thing they have never done, they never went back to idolatry. That was the ultimate final cure, wasn't it? After the entire history of the Bible and during the days of the Maccabees from that time on and the transitional period from the building of the temple that you read of in Haggai to the Maccabees to the time of Jesus Christ, the Jews as a race have never gone back to Dagon or Chemosh or Baal. Now, they're deceived and they're worshiping a false god in their own minds, but they've never gone back to blatant idolatry. They stand upon the Old Testament of the Bible, which is the Jewish Bible. So it's interesting, just as a comment in passing. That was finally the cure, wasn't it, after the 70 years' captivity. Chapter 3, I've mentioned this many times in verse 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. Now, when you saw, as I did, and I know it must have been equally as uh, horrifying for you as it was for my wife and me to see all the fires that were burning in Florida, and uh, you could actually see the satellite pictures of the smoke that was actually drifting way out over the Atlantic. And there were an awful lot of people that were, well, lost their homes, not as many as could have lost their home because of the tremendous heroic work of thousands of firefighters, many of which were actually airlifted in there from Oregon and Idaho and from some of the western Rocky Mountain states where they are smoke jumpers that actually jump into a forest fire area. And many, many states all around the nation sent firefighting units to Florida. Now, what were the motives of these firemen when the temperature is 102 degrees outside and there are fires on all quadrants and here they are in those huge big helmets and those heavy asbestos, I guess, laden suits that must weigh about 60 pounds. And you've got to, you know, imagine somebody even putting on that kind of garb walking across the street would break out in a sweat in every pore of his body. And here they are going around knocking and banging on doors and saying, folks, you need to get out, your house might go. And by the time I come back, I'm going to go at the end of the block. And when I come back, I'm going to give you only 15 minutes. You've got to get out of here. You saw some of the interviews. Some of the people were angry. They were frustrated. 
They run every gamut of emotion from great thanksgiving, thank you for saving my life, to people who were angry and bitter about why do they force me, to some who even refused to leave. But my question is, what is the motive of the fireman? Oh, well, I'm here to make money. This is my job. Uh, I hope to get a full paycheck. I really don't think so. I think by this time, when you're up close, face to face with people who are maybe about to lose everything they've ever accumulated, that maybe there is some personal emotion involved, and maybe those firemen had a motive that went beyond just their job and the thing that they do to earn a living. We received a call some few months ago now at 3.30 in the morning from a neighbor lady behind us that said, Shirley, and the phone woke me up, it's right by my ear, my wife grabbed the phone, said, I believe the house across the street from you is on fire. And we looked out our window and couldn't believe it. Just one house across from the one across from us, I guess two houses, uh, kind of, as they say, catacornered across the street from us, flames shooting up in the air. I got dressed. I went over there. The fire truck had just arrived. The hose was squirting water about that far, hardly any water pressure. Thankfully, it was a quiet night. There was no wind, and the draft from the fire was going straight up because the houses that were on either side were as close as half of this room. Or it could have gotten those houses, and maybe sparks would have fallen down on ours. But I didn't know whether the family was at home or not. And I was too late to do anything about it because that entire house was fully engulfed with flames shooting out. The roof had already collapsed. All the windows had flame coming out and was making this crackling, thundering roar by the time I even got there. And I thought, I wonder if the family is at home. And a neighbor lady in her nightgown was there, and she said, No, I believe they're both gone. And I thought, Well, what a relief. She said, I think that she is down in Houston with her mother, and I believe that he is over in Fort Worth where he has a job. So the family wasn't at home. Well, that was quite a relief to know. But the home was lost, and they had simply packed a suitcase and gone. And everything, including her jewelry, she was shifting, uh, sifting rather, through the ashes for days and days after that, trying to find how much of it, maybe if a diamond had been in the gold, the gold would have melted down to try to find anything at all she could from just the ashes that had been their home. Now, had they been in there, if I'd have gotten there in time, or those firemen, they would have done everything possible, wouldn't they, to have gotten those people out of that house? And I think about those three little boys, they showed us the pictures several times over in Ireland, just because they were Catholics. Some orange men, as they're called, Protestants, decided to attack the Catholic house and set it on fire. And the family couldn't get their three little boys out of an upstairs bedroom, and they all three died. And you saw the funeral probably on CNN as we did just the other day. Again, a despicable act of brutality beyond your ability to believe three precious, beautiful young children. It's not their fault that they were born to a family who believes in the Pope in Rome. And those children are the victims of the kind of hatred and bitterness that seems to be only found in the rotten, self-righteous hearts of religious people. I used to say for years, don't get too close to some of these religious people, you're going to get yourself killed. And I verily believe that because 99% of the death and murder and mayhem and misery in the world comes from religious fanatics. And I don't care if you're talking about the Ayatollah Khomeini and his successor over in Iran sitting there on his Persian prayer rug and plotting how to do away with the United States and Israel, 
or whether you're talking about any of the other Arab states that hate Israel because of religion, or whether you're talking about North Ireland Protestants and Catholics, it is religion at the basis of the strife in nearly all of the world. And that's exactly what God's Word says. When you're a watchman, you give warning. And when you've done that, you have acquitted yourself well. You saw the approaching army. You blew the blast on the trumpet. You said, here it comes, but they wouldn't listen. Just yesterday early, if you had been in Papua New Guinea, if you had been able to run along the villages on a sand spit 300 yards long by 100 yards wide, and you'd been able to scream to a lot of those hundreds and hundreds of villagers, there's been an earthquake. The huge tectonic plates out here in the ocean have snapped. And there was an earthquake out at sea. And there's a series of huge waves coming. And some of them are 30 feet high. You've got to get out. I think you would have done it. But no one knew. And no one showed up to give them a warning. And those people aren't there anymore. Huge tidal waves swept into Papua New Guinea, and they think maybe more than 1,000 people are gone, and many of them were little children. And the lagoon that is just off that sand spit, the sand spit being a place where there were several villages made of little ramshackle huts with thatch and tin, but they were pretty sturdy, the people said in Australia, reporting this from Canberra, where they used to live, and all these villages were, is just clean sand. There is nothing left. But in the lagoon, you can look down and see pieces of bodies, bodies, tin, iron kettles, all the rubble and the refuse of what used to be villages when huge waves came in just yesterday and just scoured that landscape and left not one of them alive. I think of the motives of people who try to save other people. I know that I thought I had lost my son Matthew on an occasion when my wife yelled out because Matthew was floating face down in a pool and how I was frantic to get to him. Actually, I learned later on that when young children fall into a pool, if you get there in plenty of time, automatically a valve cuts off and it's impossible for them. You can go and experiment at home if you want to. Just fill a dishpan full of water, put your face in it, and try to breathe. You can't do it. It's impossible. You cannot breathe water in. There is a, an absolute lockdown in your lungs and throat that won't let you do it. So they've even shown that the baby, who of course has spent his entire nine months in gradual development in water, hasn't he? Uh, they have shown that actually very shortly after birth you can put children under water and they just hold their breath. Well, I was frantic anyway, and so I was swimming there and I got to where I was close enough and I'm trying to wade through water. You ever try to hurry in water about chest deep? Trying to get to that boy. And I did, and I snatched him up, and then I tried to make light of it because I didn't want him to be afraid of the water. Well, he wasn't. He just laughed, and I'm sure he can't remember anything about that at this point in time. But I remember a case of the ultimate sacrifice. This actually occurred. There was a car that went off a steep, precipitous road up on Lake Shasta in northern California. And there was a woman with her child in the car. It wedged in some rocks right off of the shore and the car began filling with water, but it had actually caused the doors to shut, and there was only part of a window that was open. It was not large enough for her to get out, and she was injured anyway. And her child, I think, was also injured. But by the time the fire department police people got there, the woman was dead. Her arm was absolutely frozen solid outside of the window. She was still in the car. 
and in her frozen grip was her baby, which was alive. So the woman died in the act of saving her child. And wouldn't anyone, if given the opportunity, do exactly the same thing? Would not you give your life for your child? You know, God Almighty said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And in John, the first chapter, it says that the one we know of as Jesus Christ made all things, the universe, the solar system, this earth, and all life upon it, and made man, made Adam, made Eve, and said, you are Adam. And he is the one who called Abraham and the one who dealt with Moses and the prophets. He is also the one of whom the Bible says that God so loved the world, the favorite text of all Protestants, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. The world doesn't teach that. They don't teach that you perish. Why, no, you live forever, but just in a different place. No, but the Bible says should not perish. If you have fruit that perishes, and if you have vegetables which are called perishables, if you don't keep them frozen or cool, they're going to rot. And that's exactly what happens to human flesh. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but on the opposite, have everlasting life. Now, when you marry, and marriage is, for a lot of reasons and purposes, something far more profound, far more beautiful, and far greater than most human beings ever really wake up to understand in this rotten, filthy society. Most times, marriage is either an accident, it is utterly selfish, it is two people who want to get, it is one person who wants to get the other person for his or herself, and uh, marriage is very sometimes casually entered into and sometimes just as casually broken. But in its perfect example in the Word of God, marriage should be for the purpose of the propagation of the race for the purpose of a son being born to a father, a daughter to a mother, for a husband and a wife to become one flesh, as the Bible says, to become the basic unit of all of society and civilization, which is like a microcosm or a type of the very plan and the program or the purpose of God Almighty. Because God is reproducing after his own kind, and we are merely prototypes. We're God's children, God's kids, so to speak, made in the image of God. Now, what if you were the father and mother of ten children? Would you love all ten of them? Well, I have found, I've talked to people who are parents of ten children on one occasion, one who is, uh, I think, a grandparent of fifteen. But I imagine that that is almost limitless, that the human capacity for loving a child, if it is your child, if it is of your flesh and blood, is virtually limitless. So I'm assuming that if someone had 100 children, some old patriarch that wore out four wives, 25 each, whatever, and he's still alive if the old boy is able to sit there with his Indian blanket over his knees, emaciated, about 92 pounds, and shaking like a paradise in a cup on payday night, well, he doesn't really know what's going on anymore, but they're all the kids. So they decide to have a family portrait, and they marshal about 100 children. He says, oh, are these all mine? You know, well, he probably loves every one of them. And the capacity for loving your own children is virtually limitless. If they're yours, you love them. 
Now, what is amazing is that I can very quickly have a feeling of real love and tenderness and concern for other people's children. I don't know why little things, little children as well as little puppies and little kitties and little, little hummingbirds and little baby birds that are kind of helpless. The little bird that my wife fished out of the pool here a few weeks ago and was just real helpless and fished it out of the pool where it couldn't swim. It fluttered in there, put it on the ground, and the mother, after a little while, fluttered over there and fed it, and the little thing managed to survive. I think most of us are that way, aren't we? That's why children like to go to the zoo. And children are fascinated with baby elephants and baby giraffes and baby rhinoceroses. Even a baby rhinoceros is cute <laughs> to most of us when you see something that is a baby. I can very easily learn to have a very tender and protective feeling toward somebody else's children. Not just my own, not my own grandchildren, but somebody else's. And so if I were to see a child that was in terrible danger, I would be very deeply concerned and want to do anything I could to prevent that. If you could prevent it, if you could protect people from doing the things that are going to bring upon them things that you wish they would not bring upon them, I think you would do that. Would you willingly be a rescuer? Would you be a savior? You know, it says saviors shall be on Mount Zion in the last part of the book of Jonah, or of Obadiah, rather. Saviors, plural. And we know that Jesus Christ is the savior in the Latin, it is Salvador. So San Salvador is a nation in Central America. And El Salvador is the capital, the Savior, and the Saint Savior. To save someone, and the Bible says an awful lot about saving, doesn't it? There are a lot of scriptures about the salvation that God is offering us. Peter on Pentecost, I have a couple of scriptures to give you right quickly, said it from Acts 2.38 to Acts 2.40, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. I have a dear friend who at this moment is lying comatose in a hospital. He is on a lung support breathing system, meaning he is lying supine on his back, his mouth is wide open, and a big tube is down into the lung, and a machine is pumping oxygen into his lungs as a result of a lifetime of smoking. Terrible emphysema. He was getting water on the brain, and so... They had to take him in for an operation about 10 days or two weeks ago and put what's called a shunt, meaning a plastic tube going into the back and going in to this part of the back and actually putting a tube to drain fluid from the brain into the stomach. They sent him to the rehab. I went down to visit him a couple of times. But he became infected. So they took him back to the emergency, emergency, what a word, emergency room or reception area of the hospital where he sat and waited for four and one half hours while they did the paperwork until his wife was just beside herself and saying, well, give me a wheelchair and I'll take him to the room. And finally, the next afternoon, the doctor who had done the surgery came in to look at him and didn't think there was too much wrong, was starting to say that 
Well, I don't think there's too much wrong when his wife said, Well, look at his back. Well, he raised the shirt and looked at his back. He says, Oh, my goodness. And immediately called the nurses and took him straight to ICU. That surgery had gotten him completely infected throughout his body. He, was, he had a raging fever. But they took him in and they put him under and he is now filled with antibiotics. There are tubes going over everywhere. There's one in his nose and there's one in his mouth and he's lying there. You can barely see the chest rise and fall. And when I go in to see him, he looks like he is already dead, but you have to look and realize, no, he is still alive. If I could grab about, I don't know how many, 630,000 youngsters, about age 14, by the nap of their neck, and take them in and stick their face right there and say, that's my friend, and he did that to him with those rotten cigarettes. Now, why don't you watch him die? And then take those kids through ward after ward after ward of hospitals where people have had a half of a lung taken out, where people are dying with them cutting an incision to put the cigarette here so they can have a fix on tobacco while they're in the process of dying. And save them from that horrifying suffering that this dear friend of mine that I played golf with for close to 20 years, who was over there and without a miracle from God, in the process of dying, then I would do that. If I could save any of my grandchildren from that kind of a fate, if I could save them from what is waiting for them out in this world when the kids come up to them and say, here, try one of these, a little red, a little yellow, a little marijuana cigarette. Everybody's doing it. I won't hurt you. I know better than that. The kids all do it. It's fun. If I could save them from that by taking them to some of the mental wards, letting them see people who are grunting around like animals, screeching like parrots, whose minds are completely fried, absolutely gone, beside themselves, out of it, completely destroyed their brain and any chance for any kind of a normal life, and just take them through the wards and let them see them one by one by one. Let them see right up close human tragedies that are right now occurring in the desperate attempt to tell them don't do that. Don't do that. About five years ago, halfway joking, I said to this dear friend of mine, Hey, I wish you'd give up those cigarettes because one of these days I'm going to be going back and forth down there to that hospital and watching you in that room, and I don't want to go through that, and you don't either. I never said another word about it, kind of halfway joking, about five years ago. But it's a terrible thing to watch it when it does happen. And when you do love somebody and you see them do that to themselves, and you get a call from the wife that says, I don't think he's going to make it, and you rush down to the hospital, it gets pretty tough. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, and that means intercessory prayer, prayers, intercessions, that is, supplicating God, pleading with God, begging God, and giving of thanks be made for all men, your neighbors, other people, people in the community, Americans, Brit Britons, other people, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. He will have all men to be saved. That is his desire to 
toward mankind. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. Look how Paul's motives were completely misunderstood. This is probably one of the most pointed examples of that, because we all know a great deal about the Apostle Paul. All of you have read, I'm sure, all of his letters and books. You've read about his life in the book of Acts. He's writing to his own beloved brethren. He's writing to his church friends, those who were in the church in Corinth, about 400 of them in a city of about 400,000, where the Apostle Paul had all these converts. He is not there physically. He's writing them a letter. they got all kinds of problems. They were getting drunk at the Passover, and you know some of the rest of it. But there was another problem. It was one of attitude. It was one of judging Paul's motives. This very angry letter that came on email to Chris that he forwarded to me, that he spent this wonderful period of time trying to help this person, and I'm sure without any effect, recently, was actually accusing me of being in it for the money. Unbelievable. And went to great lengths to talk about all the money he was making in whatever business he was in, and urging Chris Cumming to get into something similar to that so he could make some money so he wouldn't be dropped and uh, come to no, no good end if he stuck with this organization. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? In other words, there were an awful lot of people who were indentured bondservants or slaves. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? The produce, the fruit of his labor were those people. If I be not an apostle unto others, strangers, people that he met when he traveled, people all over the eastern Mediterranean world, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are you in the Lord. He didn't have documents. He didn't have credentials. The seal on the document that was, were his credentials was the fact that there were converts there. There were people who knew God's truth, that the Apostle Paul had reached with God's truth. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. I love that. Good old rotten, suspicious human nature. There used to be a funny little cartoon called Suspicions Confirmed. And then you'd see people talking or things like that. And it was really hilarious. It used to come in the Sunday uh, papers many, many years ago. I don't know if they still have that extant or not. But there are an awful lot of people who believe in some of the most ridiculous statements where there's smoke, there's fire. Nonsense. That's not true. There have been peat bogs smoking, and there have been uh, coal mines smoking for literally decades, and there's no fire. But people say that. So they have all these cliches, and people are very suspicious. Now, we live in a climate of suspicion, and we live in a day when we look at the highest offices in the United States and all the chicanery and skullduggery of the DNC and illegal contributions from China and so on, that it's no wonder, in a way, that people are very, very suspicious. My answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power, authority, liberty, freedom to eat and to drink, or are we supposed to starve to death and die of thirst? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife? Oh, this is interesting. I don't know what the Pope does with this, so don't ask him and don't tell him I said so. <laughs> Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, plural? So the apostles were married. They were not celibate. And as the brethren of the Lord, Peter, that was rather, I'm sorry, Joseph, James, and uh, the brethren of the Lord, the, not just the spiritual brethren, but the literal flesh and blood children of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and uh, Simon 
and James and Judas, and Kephas or Peter. That is a plain statement in the Word of God that Peter had a wife. He talked about his wife's mother being ill and how Christ healed her, if you remember. So notwithstanding what the Catholic Church says, Peter was not celibate but had a wife and probably had children. Some of them are alive, you know, their ancestors are alive and well on the earth somewhere today as are a lot of other ancestors, a lot of the rest of those other people, including some of the ancestors that are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Now, don't send me a genealogy. Uh, I, I need to say that in passing, because an awful lot of people get into genealogies and they're going to trace that back and try to find out. I wonder if, if, if I'm one of those. Or I only and Barnabas have we not power to forbear working. Who goes to warfare any time at his own charges? In other words, if you're drafted, you have to go out and buy your own rifle and your own uniform and your own boots and helmet. Who plants the vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? Or who feeds the flock and eats not of the milk of the flock? What is at issue here? Money. These people were suspicious of Paul. Paul is sacrificing everything. He's doing everything you can imagine to reach these people in great peril of his life. If you read 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, the many times he was shipwrecked, five different times, taken out and beaten within an inch of his life with a cat of nine tails, 39 stripes laid on by a big burly guy wielding like a buggy whip or a great big cattle whip right across his back. He spent uh, a day and a night in the tossing around in the depths of the Mediterranean south of the island of Malta. He went hungry. He went naked. He was dragged outside and left on a garbage dump one time when he couldn't find a pulse or even see that he was breathing and he was comatose, left him for dead after they stoned him and beat him nearly to death. And he was doing this for the sake of doing the work and pursuing the work that God had called him to do, the sake of the gospel. Say I these things as a man? Am I arguing materially or merely humanly? Am I merely trying to persuade you with my human arguments here? Or doesn't the law say the same thing also? It's written in the law of Moses, you're not to muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Well, obviously he's talking about a, an analogy that if a dumb brute beast, which is hooked to a yoke, is just going around and around and around on a mill floor where they put the grain under its hoofs because it is rolling a great big huge stone, you know, that rolls around on a board that they have through it, and the ox was allowed to eat and munch, a grass, munch the grass or the grain as it went along. Or does he say it for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he that ploweth should plow in hope. Otherwise, what's he doing out there plowing? Why would a farmer plow up a garden? And then the neighbors say, what are you doing eating of it? And he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, now what are they? Well, I'll tell you, at the time that it's my turn or your turn, and I remember a beloved relative that I won't go into in detail being told by a doctor, now, if your heart stops, do you want us to keep you going? Do you want us to artificially keep your heart going? And this relative said, no because the suffering had just been too long, too acute, and too protracted to give a different answer. So all I'm saying is when it's my turn or when it is your turn, and you know this is it, then let me ask you, of what value is any material possession you have ever accumulated in your life? Of what value is a lovely ring on your finger? And I've got a beauty that I worked to put together for about 
15, 20 years, the first diamond in that ring was given me by an agent, and I paid $300 for one of those diamonds in there that's probably worth several thousand today, but I wouldn't want to sell it because I only give you 50% of what it's worth. It wouldn't be worth anything to me then, would it? Except to give to my sons. Nothing would be of any value, not my car parked outside, not the clothing that I left in the closet when they put me in that little kind of a funny-looking hospital gown. Nothing. So the Apostle Paul is trying to get these people to wake up to just look at the true values. What is valuable? What is really worth anything? Is eternal life and salvation and living forever in that glorious body that Mr. Bumgarner was talking about worthwhile? And how do you compare that with the material things. And by the way, how much time have I got, Mark? Five minutes? Oh, I don't I want to go through the Y2K syndrome. Don't even have time to tell you about it. I'll do it later. I want to give you a little by the way about whether or not you're hooked into M1 or M2 in the money supply and what might happen. I'll do that some other time. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things, your material things? If others be partakers of this power over you, and they were there locally, meaning the local people were tithing and giving to their local leadership, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things. It irks me to have someone write a letter to characterize the letters that I send to our mailing list as dunning letters. The man is a point-blank liar and doesn't know what he's talking about. I've never sent a dunning letter to anybody in my life, and I never will. We give everything that we publish and print and reproduce in tape cassettes and video cassettes and all of our literature, as you so well know free of charge, and you brethren and the people along the way on the tape program and the video program, all the way to overseas, whether Norway and, and England and Australia and everywhere, who will be seeing this video in a week, know that that is our policy. But he said he had not used this power but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And he said in verse 14, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be done so unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void, because Paul could live with himself. Paul didn't have a conscience about avarice. Paul was not like some people I know, who under the aegis of a religious organization have cut every corner and done every possible thing they could to get filthy rich in this world's impermanent, oh-so-fleeting physical goods, and they will be of the same value that a lovely little green minivan is to a dear friend of mine that I saw parked in front of his house before I came over here, who is lying in a comatose position in the hospital right now, and I hope will still be alive by the time I go by to visit this afternoon. That van is of no use to him at all right now. Some people have their priorities all askew, don't they? And when people will use God's work and God's church to get rich and will use that and their power, their position and their authority in it in order to amass money, that to me is the most despicable way of any way, as bad as bank robbers of the mafia, as far as I'm concerned, because they're not dealing with insurance money or bank money or somebody else's money. They're stealing from God Almighty. They're taking from the altar of the temple. 
Paul said, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory, for necessity is laid upon me. For woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. That's exactly my sentiments. I echo those sentiments exactly. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, under no obligation, he was out of debt, he owed nobody, he was not indentured, he was not a bondservant, he was a free Roman citizen. He didn't have much, but he didn't owe anything either. Yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And later on, after talking about being like Jewish to the Jews, the vows, the shaved heads, the sacrifices, if that were necessary, to them without law as if without the law, but being under the law to Christ, verse 21. Verse 22, he said, To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means, any means, every mean, every method, save some. Talk about a firefighter saying, folks, the house may burn. Here was a man who forsook everything, gave everything, because he knew that he was involved in a work of rescue, a work of salvation, a work of saving people. There are those who seem to think that sin does not carry its own punishments and that in their self-righteous judgmental hypocrisy, when people who have committed sins and who have suffered the pangs of hell itself while they yet live as a result, whether it's, as I'm saying, emphysema or whether it's a sin that can cause horrible mental, emotional and spiritual trauma and upset and hundreds of tear-stained nights and sleepless nights and an agony of soul, in their self-righteous, hypocritical, supercilious, judgmental, pharisaical attitude, there are many people that think, we need to make them suffer even more. I really think my beloved friend, who had to know in the very long, protracted period of time following his operation and the diagnosis of perhaps terminal emphysema, has had to deal in his own mind with what he has done to himself and that for me to go in there if he ever becomes lucid again and to say, why couldn't you give up those cigarettes, would be the dumbest, the most self-righteous, hypocritical, rotten thing I could do to that man. All I'm going to do now is pray for him, love him. If I'm there and he ever becomes conscious, show him my support and that I hope he gets out of that bed and comes home. But I'm going to understand that he is suffering in a way that you can't even imagine for things that he himself has to deal with in his own mind, and it's up to Almighty God to judge him, not me. I wish other people could somehow learn that lesson. No, I don't send out dunning letters, and no, I'm not in it for the money.